0: This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and fpcgulfport on YouTube. If you were to take a small sheep and place him in the lion's cage at the zoo, how do you think things will turn out for the sheep? If you take this adorable, cute, cuddly little lamp and you just march it right into the lion's den at the zoo, how do you think things are going to turn out? Well, spoiler alert, not too well. If you're in the sheep in this circumstance, you're about to have a bad day. Now, why is that? Well, the short answer is this. It's because of the existence of the lion. If you're a sheep and you go into the lion's den, the reason you're going to have a bad day is because of the existence of the lion. Now, let's say the sheep doesn't know that. Let's say the sheep doesn't understand where it's been put. Let's say the sheep does not have a right understanding of its circumstance, its situation. Furthermore, let's say that when it sees the lion, it misunderstands what the lion represents and the danger the lion can bring. Let's say the sheep goes into the lion's den and goes right up and starts to cuddle or spoon with the lion. How are things going to turn out for the sheep? Not well. The sheep is going to have a bad time. You see, all of God's creatures, be they sheep, chickens, or you and I, all of God's creatures, wherever they are, whatever context they live, have to understand the circumstances in which they exist. Have to understand their environment. It doesn't matter if you're a sheep, a chicken, a gator down the by, or what have you. You have to understand your circumstance, your situation, in order to live, succeed, and thrive in that setting. And if you don't understand, the environment in which you've been placed. If you're a sheep who doesn't understand the danger of the lion's den, if you don't understand the environment in which you've been placed and the inhabitants that may exist therein, you are in for a surprise. The same is true for us spiritually. Are there any lions that you and I need to be concerned with out there? Are there any lions that you and I need to be concerned with? Well, if you believe the Bible, the answer is yes. If you believe the Bible, then the answer is yes. They are very real spiritual lines. In fact, there is a singular, very real spiritual line that Scripture calls out in 1 Peter chapter 5 and says, watch out for him. 1 Peter chapter 5 says this, there is one, we call him the devil, who walks about like a roaring lion, seeking those that he may devour. Now, as we look at the sun on the spring day, I know that's a gloomy thought. We look out of this day and we think, that's kind of dark. That's kind of gloomy. Some of us, we see those passages in Scripture that talk about this present darkness, that talk about our spiritual condition, that talk about the devil and demons and all that, and we say, not for me. We say, that's too dark. Some of us, even we hear this talk about a devil or demons or spiritual warfare or what have you, we say, only the charismatics believe that. Only, your know, crazy people believe that sort of stuff. We act as if it's for someone someone else, some other congregation is other people. Well, let me submit this to you. If there is a devil, and newsflash, there is. If there is a devil, I'm sure that that kind of ignorance is just what he wants. You know, there's a, there's a movie or a C.S. Lewis book or something that has this line. It says that the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled amidst all the things that he's done is to convince a world, our world, to convince you and I at times that he's not there. So long as you believe that, you're in danger. So long as you and I live out our days in the midst of the lion's den and we don't think there's a lion, it won't turn out any better for us than it does for the sheep. So long as we think that we're safe, so long as we think that our our kids are safe as we send them out in this world, to wander around the lion's den without recognizing the lion, so long as we do this, I'll tell you this much, we and our kids, we are far easier to corrupt, to pick off, and to devour if you're the lion. If there really is a lion, then our failure to recognize him in a secular world and especially in the church exactly what he wants, exactly what he's taken advantage of. As Christians, though, our God doesn't want us to go through this life so naive. See, as Christians, our God doesn't want us to be ignorant about the existence of the devil, demons, whatever spiritual enemies of high places are out there. The Bible does talk about these things. Again, it's not just the charismatics. The Bible talks about these things in real straightforward terms. Today's verse talks about these things in a real straightforward terms. It says that this one not only exists, but the world outside our doors is under His sway, under His control, under His influence, under His manipulation. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway Of the wicked one, the whole world. That is comprehensive. That is comprehensive. The whole world, that means Main Street, that means Wall Street, that means your street. If you get nothing else out of today's lesson, I hope you get this. The world in which you live, the world in which we send our kids out to and the like, it is the spiritual equivalent of a lion's den, it's not neutral. So often we think that the world, it's like this canvas of neutrality, right? There's good people, there's bad people, there's good things and there's bad things, good teachings and bad teachings, and we can kind of select and choose, and so forth. That may sound nice, to think that the world is neutral and you're a free agent, but it isn't so. It's not the teaching of Scripture. Today's passage, the whole world lies under the control of the wicked one. What does that mean? How does it apply to us? That's going to be our focus. All right, if you would, I'm going to return today's text. We're going to look at verse 19, but I'm going to first read verse 18, and then I'm going to add verse 20 so we we can see it in a a little bit of greater context. Chapter 5, verses 18 through 20 say this. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we might know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. All right, who wrote the letter of 1 John? Not a trick question. John, The Apostle John wrote the letter of 1 John. Now, when and why did he write this letter? Well, most commentators believe that John wrote a lot of the things that he wrote near the end of his life. And in this case, he wrote this to what is believed to be an undetermined possible handful of churches. It's clearly people to which he was close because he talks throughout the letter of 1 John about his beloved. He writes to people that he calls his children. Those he cares deeply for. So the letter of 1 John is written by John to people in churches that he cares deeply for. And one of the things he does to manifest his care for them is to warn them about the dangers in the world around them. That's one of the things you and I do as parents. If you love your kids, you warn them. Don't touch the stove. It's hot. Stay away from the fire. It will burn you. Stop running into the street. There's traffic there. If you love your children, if you love kids, if you love anybody... You seek to protect them from the danger of the world around you. Well, John does this throughout the five chapters of his book. We're just kind of looking at one particular verse. But that's his intention. Beyond that, he's telling his people, he's reminding his spiritual children, he's reminding the churches, the people he cares about, he's reminding them of some of the basics of Christianity throughout his letters. Now, among other things, one of the most basic Teachings in Christendom, one of the most basic teachings of Christianity, is that you and I as Christians will face hardship, persecution, oppression in life. If it happened in Jesus, it'll happen in us. Furthermore, the scripture categorizes that persecution, that oppression, in three ways. It says there's three opponents that you and I will face. The first it identifies as the devil, the second it identifies as the world, and the third identifies as our flesh. Is our sinful inclinations, irregardless of what else is out there. So as Christians, we're continually opposed. And we will be, to the end of our days, by spiritual forces in high places, by a world that hated Jesus and will hate us too, and by the sin and temptation that exists within our own hearts. Now, that, again, on a beautiful sunny spring day, that's kind of gloomy, well, I suppose it, it is, but it is also one of the most consistent teachings in Scripture, especially in the New Testament. This reminder that things really are dark out there. Even on sunny days, the spiritual climate, if you could see the spiritual climate around us, it would be like it was two nights ago with the thunder and the lightning and the heavy rain, and the flooding and all that. That's the spiritual climate, irrespective of how much sunlight's going on outside these doors. So, Scripture regularly talks about these things. It regularly reminds us of these forms of opposition that we'll face from these three different trajectories. Even if we don't like it, it regularly puts that before us. So, when John came to the fifth chapter of his letter, it appears he wanted to remind the local churches he was writing to of the distinction between those who are of God and those who aren't, and of the conflict that will come between them. Specifically, again, he says in verses 18 and 19, he says, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. That does not mean you'll never sin, but it means it's not a habitual thing, that you're being sanctified. So we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we, we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. He's making a distinction. You can call it the regenerate and the unregenerate, the elect and the non-elect, believers, non-believers, saved, not saved. He's making this distinction. But furthermore, he's saying that we who are of God are impacted and informed by our relationship with God. He's doing something in our lives. He's changing us. He's making us something better than we once were. We now follow the footsteps of Jesus of Nazareth. We now follow the footsteps of our Lord and Savior. But... Those who do not believe him, those whose hearts have not been changed, those who have not been born again, they also follow the footsteps of their father, but it's a different father. They also are inclined to do the will of someone other than themselves, but it's not the will of God. Let me expand on that in a moment here. But first, before I do, let me, let me ask you. When John writes about the world being under the sway or the control of, of the wicked one? First of all, A, do you think he's being melodramatic there? Do you think he's being melodramatic? I hope not. But B, let me ask you, where did he even learn that to begin with? John, if you look at his gospel and you look at his letters, you'll see he often talks about the world and the evils and devils filled and all that. He regularly talks about that. You'd think he was a charismatic, but he's not. He regularly talks about these things. Where did he learn them? Where did he learn them? I heard the right answer. It's from Jesus. Jesus. He learned what he learned from Jesus. So when he tells us about these things and the dangers outside these doors and the devil's filled and all that, he got it right from Jesus. And if you don't believe it, let's look at Jesus' own words. Let's look at John 15, verses 18 through 25. I'm just going to read this for us here. John 15, this is Jesus talking. This is the red letter print in the Bible. This is Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says. He says this to the church. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. See, he's making a similar distinction that John made. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. I told you Tulip was in here. I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you because I've taken you out of the world, because I've elected you and saved you, and you're born again and you're different than you once were, because that's true, the world now hates you for it. Jesus says, don't be surprised when this happens. The world will no longer be your buddies after you have been changed. Verse 20, remember the word which I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, which ultimately they did by killing him, if they persecute me, they'll also persecute you. If they've kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who has sent me. If I had not come and spoke to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. And this happened, that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in the law. They hated me without a cause. Before we go on, let me give you just a couple more verses to chew on. Because I want us to extract. Remember the one thing I want us to walk out these doors with? I want us to walk out these doors recalling that the world is not spiritually neutral. We often think that it is. And so we read the paper and we see some atrocity. We can go, ah, I can't believe such a thing would happen. I can't believe what politician XYZ said. I can't believe someone would commit such a crime. You're only surprised by that stuff if you're not in regular encounters with this. Whenever the world rails against the doors of the church, whenever the world redefines basic things like marriage and family and the like, when it does that, you won't be surprised by it if you've encountered these verses and understand what the world is. James 4.4, Christ's half-brother said this. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity... With God, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There is nothing I will say, no matter how much passion I might have up here, no matter how much I wave my arms around. There is nothing I will say today that is stronger than what Scripture already says on this topic. You adulterous people, do you not know? Have you not been paying attention? Are you not aware that friendship with the world is enmity? with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, make himself an enemy of God. 1 John 2.15, Jesus added this, Hold it different verse, hold whole different chapter. It says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Finally, John 16.33, Jesus gave us this warning. He says, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, because I have defeated the world. In the world you shall have tribulation. Again, if you read the newspapers, if you go on your phone, you're surprised by things that are going on, especially when the dagger seems aimed at the heart of the church or what we believe, don't be surprised. That is normal. That's natural. What's not normal across the history of the church is the relative peace that we've had in North American Christianity for the past couple hundred years. That's not normal. That's the outlier. What is far more normal and what still may be future is the degree of angst and persecution that we see here, tribulation. In the world you shall have tribulation, full stop. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Again, whether it's Jesus or John or James or Paul or whoever, but scripture is replete with these warnings. It tells you and I as Christians, there really are dangers out there. And dear heavens, the degree to which we march ourselves in and lay down in the lion's jaws and think that we'll be unscathed. The degree to which we send our children into such environments and think that they're strong enough. Eh. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says we're sheep. It says we are sheep and there is a lion out there. Act accordingly. So there is opposition that exists. Now, For the main part of our time here this morning, let me ask you a question. If there's opposition, all right, I think most of us can kind of get that from these verses. We say, okay, all right, there's a devil, demons, whatever. They do their thing, we do our thing, and somehow that intersects in ways that are kind of negative for us, but I don't know how. Assuming you think there's a lion, a devil, whatever out there, how does he ever mess with you? How does the spiritual world ever mess with you? How does it happen? For many of us, we don't know the answer to that. We think that, okay, to the degree any of this is going on, it's happening some spiritual plane somewhere else, but I'm a foot soldier in a different battle. I'm not engaged in this, or it's not engaged with me. Well, let me ask you a question. If there is opposition from spiritual forces in high places, how does it affect you? How does it come after you? What do you think? How do you answer that? It's an important question. It's a critical question because you can't protect yourself from that which you don't know is coming. If you don't know how the devil comes after people, then you won't know how to be braced for it. How does the devil mess with the church, with God's saints? How does he mess with our children? Well, the short answer is this. His attack must have two components. It must have a means, and it must have a mode. Now, what are we talking about here? Well, let's start with the means. In order to influence, in order to manipulate and shape the hearts and minds and affections of people like you and I, the devil needs a primary means, a primary tool to do that, doesn't he? He needs a tool. That's another word for means. He needs some tool that he can use to get to you and I. What tool does he choose? Well, I would submit to you that the primary means that the devil uses to subvert one man is the usage of other men. The primary tool the devil uses to subvert us is the use of others. Now, do you remember, is there any biblical examples of that? Yes. There's all manner of biblical examples of that. Balaam, Absalom, Cain, Korah, uh, Judas Iscariot, the Pharisees, who Jesus looked in the eye and said, You were of your father, the devil. Scripture's filled with the devil using fallen wicked men to subvert and subjugate the faith of other men. Again, the Pharisees, they're a primary example of this, of being utilized. If you don't think a man can be used to mess with another man, then what do you make of Jesus' accusation of the Pharisees, who, remember, were the religious elite of their day? He said to them, he said, you are of your father the devil. But that's not all he said. He said, you are of your father the devil, and it is the devil's will that you want to do. You of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father, you want to do. Jesus is saying that the means, the tool by which the devil affects and informs our age, our church, you and I, is the usage of others. Be they Pharisees or what have you. The use of others. Now, some in this room, some who might hear this after the fact, might say, well, that's how can that be? That's pretty controversial. See, you and I this morning in our room here, I hope we have a passing understanding of Reformed theology, a passing understanding of the fact that there's elect and non-elect and the like. Not everyone does. And so a lot could hear that and go, wait a second, hold the phone here. What do you mean God uses other men? What's this idea of some being of their father, the devil? What does that mean? In our enlightened day and age, in our enlightened day and age, we believe in the freedom of the will. We think that, that man is spiritually neutral, that you come into this life, it's a blank canvas, and you write out your story upon it. There are spiritual free agents, and if we're spiritual free agents, then everyone else is too, right? That's the basic understanding that even pervades the evangelical world. That we're all spiritually free agents, and the world is really spiritually neutral. Yes, there's some bad in it, and yes, there's some good in it. And if we just stimulate and encourage the good, it'll swamp the bad. That sounds nice, but it isn't what Scripture says. Ephesians 2. Paul says that those who are unsaved, that they operate according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Do you hear that? There is no spiritually neutral people out there. There's children of God and children of the devil. That's Christ's teaching. Paul's teaching, James' teaching, John's teaching. One end of the book to the other end of the book. There is opposition out there. And it's not just in the spiritual plane, but it is manifest through other people. Otherwise, again, if you don't believe that, you can do nothing with verses like this, which say that the unsaved operate according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, whose will they desire to do. You don't come into this world as a spiritual free agent, and you won't leave this world as a spiritual free agent. There's no such cat. There's no such thing. It may be what a lot of people think that might even be what you think or want to think. It's not true. It's not scriptural. People do not come into this world spiritually neutral. They come in spiritually biased. And they are readily used by the devil as the primary means by which he attacks the church and attacks you and I. Now, in the early church, let's use an example of this. In the early church, this exact thing I'm talking about happened all the time. The only difference is that then they called it out as they saw it. They called things as they saw it in their day. In our day, we don't know what to make of any of this stuff. In their day, all of the apostles, all the letters of Paul and James and all the rest of them regularly said the greatest threat, the greatest danger to the church is when the devil sends in false prophets and false teachers to mess with the church. That was the greatest danger by far. Yes, there was a devil, but he uses people. Listen to what we read in 2 Corinthians 11. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's of no surprise to his servants. It's no surprise that his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their ends will correspond to their deeds. Time and time and time and time again. Remember in Galatians, we spent 10 weeks in it. We talked about how Paul, the Johnny Appleseed of church planting, planted this healthy church in Galatia. Then he left, and what happened? Others came in, and they taught a different gospel, a gospel that Paul said, anathema. Cursed is he who believes this. The attack on the church in Galatia It didn't come because the devil showed up as a clown with a red balloon. It didn't come because some monsters jumped out behind the curtains and started attacking and ravaging the Galatians. It came because the devil affected and informed the minds of wicked men to go to Galatia and to preach and teach something false. It's no different in our age. If this was the devil's playbook then, why would we think it's any different now? Throughout church history, people are the means. People are the means that the devil has has used. They're still his means. There is, if I take an aside here for a moment, there's a lot of craziness going on in the church world these days. I'm sure that every generation has, has said that, but it certainly seems true in ours. There is a lot of craziness in the modern church. And given some of the heresies besetting all of the denominations trickling in even to the most austere and reformed ones. Given all the heresies that are out there, it's reasonable to ask, again, where do they come from? How do they manifest themselves? Are these crazy ideas that are springing up in the church? Are these crazy ideas and doctrines, are they just the result of a lot of, you know, really well-meaning theologians who are just making thousands of incidental errors? Or is there something more intentional, something more diabolical at play. You know what I'm going to say about that? But who cares what I say about that? Listen to what Paul said. Such men, the sort of people that preach these sort of things, the sort of people that go to Galatia and teach that which is anathema, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise. If the servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their ends will correspond to their deeds. If you listen closely... If you listen closely to what goes on behind the scenes in the greater evangelical world, you can hear the serpent's hiss if you pay if you pay attention. If you believe scripture, you know that this to be true, and it's not being unduly tough or mean-spirited to say such a thing. When the Bible calls out this sort of thing and these sorts of people and says that they're wolves and deceitful workmen and the like that's scripture's language the problem is that sometimes we are too apprehensive or scared to say what scripture says clearly and because of that because that we're somewhat blinded to the dangers outside the church and some of the dangers that even exist within brick buildings with crosses up front now, as another side note, if the church could be invaded by false teachers and false prophets, the way Paul says here, how full do you think universities are? If the church, if the church could be invaded to the degree it has been historically, if the church could be invaded, even churches that apostles like Paul had had preached to and set up and set up to succeed, if those churches and today's churches and churches everywhere could be infiltrated by this. How infiltrated do you think universities are and the media and the like in Hollywood? If the devil's infiltrated the church using the means of fallen people, how safe do you think all the world's institutions are? Not very is the short answer. Whatever case, I said we have the means and the mode, and the means are people. The way that the devil will mess with you or your children, what have you, is he will use other people. Now, if that's true, if they are the means, then what's the mode? Well, the mode is simple. If the means are the people, the unsaved, unelect, non-regenerate people of the world around us, if they are the means, then the mode is the things that they say. The mode is words. The mode is words. You remember the example we used of this, uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago. We talked about the garden, right? The garden. So you have Adam and Eve, and they're frolicking in the cool of the afternoon like. And one day Eve's off doing her thing, and then what happens? Well, into the garden comes the serpent, who's more clever than all the beasts of the field. The serpent comes in. Now, what does a serpent do? If you see a serpent out in your yard here in South Mississippi, what are you afraid it'll do to you? Well, you're afraid it'll bite you. It's, that's the outcome you don't want. Whatever else it does, you don't want it to bite. You don't want it to wrap itself around your throat. You don't want it to attack you. Well, here's the thing. That's not what the serpent did in the garden. Our fear is a frontal assault where the devil will come at us and attack us with the clowns of the red balloons and will bite us and wrap himself around our neck and there's monsters under the bed. No! The devil will do what he did in the garden when he went up to Eve. He will simply open up his mouth and speak. And that will be the means by which he launches the greatest attack, not only on our first parents, but on parents of our own day and age as well, on you and I. The means is people. The means is others. The mode is words. That's the way the devil works. The reason the greatest trick the devil or pulled is convincing the world he doesn't exist is because we seldom hear his hiss in the words that are spoken into our life. The devil doesn't aim bullets or bombs at us. He aims his words. And it's been true, not just from the garden, but all the way forward. You know, in the early church, you think back to the early church, you think of some of the heresies, Arianism, Plagianism, there's others. Arius and Plagius. These rogues of church history, they didn't advance their heresies at the tip of a sword. They advanced them by the tip of their tongue. They advanced their words. And their words are far more dangerous than if they'd taken a thousand swords to the opposition. So people are the means. Words are the mode by which the devil affects informs, forms, manipulates, controls, sways, fallen man. And the sad thing is when it comes to these words is that these words are exactly what fallen sinful people want to hear. See, that's the irony of this. You'd think that if, if someone put arsenic or poison in your Coke or something, you'd take a sip, you go, ah, and you spit it out and go, who did that? Oh, you'd say, this is terrible. The irony about poison that hits our ears is we like it. The irony about the poison of the devil that seeps into our ears and our minds and our consciousness is, is that we like it. 2 Timothy 4. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. The time will come, and probably now is, when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Not just one or two or three. They will heap up for themselves teachers. A mountain of false teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and then we'll be turned aside to fables. To fables that won't save them. Again, the devil doesn't send monsters to your door. It might be simpler, honestly, if he did. Rather, he sends lies to our ears. And the heart of fallen man eats those lies up. That's the control that we see in today's verse, 1 John five nineteen. That's the sway. That's the manipulation. That's the emphasis, using people to tell false things. That is the way the devil works his will in this fallen world through people saying that which is false. And the lesson for you and I, the lesson for you and I, is if we don't start showing some discretion, not only for ourselves, but on behalf of our children, we don't start showing some discretion as to whose voices we allow through the threshold of our doors. If we still don't start showing some discretion as to who we listen to and what they're saying, we're doing the equivalent of this. We're laying down within the devil's jaws, thinking that that will end well. It doesn't. Now, speaking of the lion's analogy, let's return to it as we close this morning. When a sheep is put in a lion's cage, you know, it, it doesn't matter whether the sheep believes in lions or not. When you put a sheep in the lion's cage, it does not matter if the sheep believes in lions. The end will be the same. For that matter, it doesn't matter how strong the sheep is. It doesn't matter how strong the sheep is, how fast the sheep is, you could have the Arnold Schwarzenegger of sheep, you could have the Carl Lewis of sheep, it won't matter. There's no commando ninja sheep out there that can contend with a lion such as this. And yet so often we think that we are strong enough to do so. You know, our world and even in the visible church filled with people who think they're a lot tougher and stronger than they really are and who don't understand the spiritual nature of their environment or their adversary. A burden, a weight on my heart pastorally is this. The more I encounter Scripture, the more I pray over God's own word, the more convinced I am that I myself, the congregation that I minister, the people of the greater church do not understand their environment correctly. They see it as far more neutral than it really is. If we do that, and we start waltzing around the lion's den, the way so many of us are, if we're honest with ourselves, some of the choices that we're making are the spiritual equivalent of waltzing into the lion's den, of spooning with the lion, and that won't end well for the sheep. If you go to the zoo, the warning signs, you go to the zoo, there's signs around the lion's den, right? It says things like this, don't feed the lion, don't climb into the lion's den. It says basic stuff. It says the lion is dangerous. Don't climb in, don't reach through, don't jump in. Why? Because the lion will get you. These warning signs are not hyperbole. The signs aren't there to hold the fence up. They're there in order to tell you something that will keep you safe and prevent you from doing something that is stupid or deadly. That's why the signs are there. Well, there are more signs than you will ever find in any one zoo collectively in Scripture to warn us about the very real lion outside our doors. And they are there to keep us safe. These verses are intended to keep us safe and to prompt us to think about these things, to look at my life and say, what am I doing that's the spiritual equivalent of dancing with lions? You ignore these signs, these verses. You just say that's for someone else, some other belief system. That's for the the charismatics or what have you." you. Ignore them at your own peril final note is that even though the line is out there, even though there is spiritual enemies, even though this is a present darkness around us, even though there is a very real line, encouraging thought for us. You remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Now Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel is this upright man. Daniel is this righteous man. Daniel is a man of God. And through no fault of his own, Daniel is thrown, where? Into the lion's den. And it's not just one lion there, but a host of hungry, kind of malnourished, ready-to-eat lions in the den in which he was thrown. You'll see this in Daniel 6 if you want to look, uh, look later. Now, even as he was utterly surrounded by hungry beasts who, who otherwise would have desired his flesh, he wasn't consumed. Why not? How could that be? How could Daniel have survived the lion's den? Well, the answer you'll get whether you're in kindergarten or whether you've got a Ph.D. is this— Because of God. God saved him. God did something. God intervened. God protected. God preserved Daniel so that no lion on earth could could harm him. The same is true in a spiritual sense for us as Christians. Yes, there is a roaring lion who prowls our world. And to ignore that is both stupid and deadly. But never forget what John said elsewhere. 1 John 4. He said, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Yes, it is true that there is an enemy out there that can flatten you like a pancake. Yes, true. But the one who is in us, he who is in you, is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus Christ overcame the world. He overcame sin and, and death. The devil's not only caged in a sense at this point, still dangerous, but he's not only caged, he's defeated. You know, Martin Luther, is his famous hymn, He had these lyrics. He said this. He said, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. In the days ahead, I don't know what the future is going to bring. I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet. But whatever the days ahead might bring, I know this, we will continue to contend against a world that opposes us and our God. But we don't contend alone. We don't contend alone. Jesus Christ is with us in the midst of whatever we may face. He's with us no matter what we face today, tomorrow, and the days ahead. And that is an encouraging, encouraging thought. Let's pray to him now. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.